It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Espresso Martini. Chris, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Matt? You good? I'm good. I'm good. Hanging in there. You know, dog days of summer. Yeah, yeah. I see you got your coffee with you. I do. Got mine as well. Still not an iced coffee, but <laughs> don't let my lesson from last time. Trying to stay well caffeinated today. Um, did you know, well, I know you know, but did you know this is the 15th installment of our little enterprise here? Very, uh, pretty neat, huh? Do you know what? <laughs> you say I know. I should know. I thought it was the 16th. <laughs> It's not? So my notes are titled EM16 Thoughts. Hold on. I got to check here before I'm like, what the fuck? Hold on. (laughs) No, I think you're right. I have 15th in our shared notes. Yeah, I think you're right. So (laughs) officially it's 15th. It's the gaslighting for me. (laughs) All right. Very exciting. Yes, indeed. So no, it's good. Anyway, all right. So and this is the last this is the last episode of the season. So we're taking a quick uh, break, a brief repose in August, uh, and then coming back strong in September. But before we do, there's a lot to cover. So let's jump into it. So on today's espresso martini, we say so long, farewell, a feeder zane and adieu to the puzzlingly short tenure of China's foreign minister, unpack some hot gossip surrounding last month's Wagner mutiny and discuss updates on the war in Ukraine, both at sea and on land. Finally, we'll worry ourselves sick over AI's potential threat to the 2024 elections on Extra Shot. Immediately following the show on Patreon, we'll gently pose to you the question, is it time to most expeditiously take a hammer to your smartwatch? We'll discuss friend of the pod Dan Kazita's legal victory over Downing Street, have a spoiler-free-ish chat about Christopher Nolan's new Oppenheimer biopic, and then we'll indulge in some flagrantly irresponsible speculation about the next Bond movie. But to access Extra Shot, you'll first need to be a Patreon subscriber. Uh, just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. 
Depending on the subscription level you'll, you choose, you'll receive a set of Secrets and Spies coasters or a coffee cup. By subscribing, you'll be directly supporting this podcast, and thus we shall remain forever in your debt. Thanks in advance for your support, and a huge thank you to existing subscribers. Your generosity helps keep this podcast going. All right, moving on to our first topic. Chin Gang, who until Tuesday was China's foreign minister, didn't quite get the Liz Trust lettuce treatment, but after a mysterious 30-day absence, was unceremoniously shown the door after only seven months on the job. This Washington Post piece by Megan Tobin will help us break it down. Chris, then I'll come to you. Yeah. So Chinese Foreign Minister Chin Gang has been officially removed from his position after a month-long disappearance, marking a sudden end to his rapid rise within China's political system. He has been replaced by Wang Yi, who previously held the position for almost a decade. Chin's whereabouts during the weeks of silence leading up to his removal were not clarified by his own ministry, leading to wild speculation about potential reasons for his disappearance, including political or personal missteps and serious illness. The prolonged silence has been damaging for Chinese diplomacy, impacting the country's ability to work with the outside world. Chin's removal complicates the tentative thaw between the United States and China, as he had agreed to visit Washington after meeting with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Beijing. The announcement of Chin's dismissal was made by Chinese state media after a hastily convened and unusually short meeting of the Chinese Communist Party's decision-making body, the National People's Congress Standing Committee. That's a mouthful. <laughs> no reason was given for his removal. Chin's rise to prominence was due to his loyalty and rapid promotions under President Xi Jinping, and he was handpicked to execute Xi's diplomatic agenda. Chin was known for his uncompromising pursuit of China's policy goals and was vocal about Taiwan being a sacred territory of China. His appointment as ambassador to the United States in 2021 was seen as evidence of Xi's fast-tracking him for higher positions, but during his tenure as foreign minister and ambassador to the United States, relations between China and the U.S. became increasingly strained. Overall, Chin Gang's abrupt removal has raised questions about the Chinese political system's opacity, impacted China's diplomacy, and created uncertainty in international relations, particularly with the United States. So, Chris, what do you make of all this? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, Chin Gang looks like a loyal soldier to China to date, so um, I would be surprised if what he did was ideological. Um, but I could be wrong. I mean, obviously his dismissal or, or his disappearance was like a week after meeting the U.S. Foreign Secretary, um, Anthony Blinken. And um, he could have said something that may not have gone with official policy, but I'm not sure about that. There was an interesting piece uh, bit in the article about potentially he may have fathered a, a child out of wedlock um, and this child may be living in the U.S. And um, that's certainly frowned upon in China. Not, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. It's sort of frowned upon because it's kind of quite um, in a lot of communist countries, extramarital extramarital affairs are frowned upon. Not so much for moral reasons, but more for sort of reasons of control because they generally like to vet partners of senior people in like Russia and China. So. Um, there's right. something very interesting there with all of that. Um, one interesting extra tip, but apparently his birth of the child in America could be seen as a slap in the face to, to President Xi and um, because it sort of shows a lack of uh, confidence in China and its future. And uh, uh, so I thought that was an interesting interpretation as well. So, yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, his disappearance, was it been three weeks or something? It was about a month. About a month, crikey. I mean, you know. <laughs> about a month, yeah, um, about 30 days that he disappeared. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, you wouldn't really get that quite in the same way in the UK. I mean, we did have, uh, I remember uh, we did have a few days of where uh, after the Brexit vote where we were not sure who the Prime Minister was anymore, but that only lasted a few days, and that was quite uh, quite yeah. a thing. But to have somebody so senior in the government just sort of vanish, um, yeah, that's kind of a weird one. Do you know, when I was reading all this, I was thinking of a picture in my mind. There's a very famous photo of Joseph Stalin walking with the NKVD chief Nikolai is it Yezov um, and apparently Yezov fell foul of Stalin and this picture was then adjusted uh, using very early old school yeah. photoshop techniques and he was removed and the picture was re-released with Stalin walking along the river and there's this sort of gap where uh, Yezov used to be so it was kind of reminding me a little bit of that um, I had a quick look at the Chinese government website and the last entry because they basically do still have um, gang on the website but they've just his last official entry is from 2018 to 2021 as Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, but his more recent job title has disappeared. So uh, that was that was very interesting. Yeah. So reading the tea leaves here, mm. not, no pun intended. And there's, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, well, he was sort of disappeared for the last 30 days. And there was like you said, there was no uh, explanation given as for why. And there was some sort of consideration, could it be some kind of like health emergency, you know, does he have COVID yeah. or something? Um, which would be, the Chinese system is so opaque and stuff. I mean, first, I'll just say, I mean, I am not a China expert at all. So I'll refrain from making pronouncements on what this means for their internal politics or, you know, their relations with the West. But it would seem to me like if the guy had COVID, if he was sick, mm. if he had to take a step back from his positions because of his health like just come out and say that you know like that's not a scandal yeah. you know, that's not something that you would have to like he's sick okay mm. um it happens but so that 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 silence kind of then of course leads people to speculate you know further and there's this quote mm. in the washington post piece uh by uh neil thomas he's a fellow for chinese politics at the Asia Society Policy Institute in Washington. He said, the lengthy silence has been hugely damaging for Chinese diplomacy. Mm. The party's addiction to secrecy in its internal operations is now having a debilitating effect on the country's ability to work with the outside world. Which I mean, like, if you want to be a great power, you know, possibly even a superpower, which is definitely sort of China's aims, like you have to be, it's, it, it's hard for people to work with you for other countries to work with you yeah. if like your foreign minister just kind of just disappears and no one will tell you why you know like it's not really like imagine i don't know chris imagine you're working with like a client or some on some film project somewhere and like you need to like you need to to speak to them to get the job done yeah. and they just disappear for 30 days and like you can't ask why you know yeah. like would you would you want to partner with them in the future no no and, and sadly actually in independent filmmaking that happens much more than one would like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I thought that that is. Yeah, that's not not too far fetched. No, it doesn't do too much for confidence, really, when people just vanish um, with no explanation. I mean, there was no. one guy I worked with who just vanished. Um, bless him. He's out there somewhere. Um, I don't think he died or anything. He just disappeared and just ghosted everybody. Bless him. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a shock to the system. Yeah. Going back to like reading the tea leaves here. I mean, so Chin's apparently retained some of his more important roles, um, like uh, his position as state councillor and a seat on the CCP Central Committee, which I guess are more senior in like the official Chinese hierarchy. So that would show, you know, not really much of an evidence of like a, mm. a of like a health scare, but mm, mm. also like I think you said, his his activities on the Chinese foreign ministries 
website, a lot of that stuff has been is in scrub, which yeah. wouldn't really point to a health issue. If I had to guess, I would think it's probably either a corruption issue that he got nabbed for, yeah. which the Chinese have come down pretty hard on, yeah. on corruption. That's understandable. Issues, which, you know, I think the Russians mm. could learn a lesson from that. So it could be that, uh, a corruption thing, or mm. yeah, like you said, this, um, this uh, child he had out of wedlock mm. who, you know, mm. is... In this in this Washington Post article, someone was quoted as describing him as like an anger baby, you know. So like you have yeah, like the Chinese foreign minister with an illegitimate kid who's a U.S. citizen for yeah. for the Chinese system. That's kind of that's kind of a, a touchy situation. I can see from a security point of view. I mean, they're not wrong to be concerned by that because that does maybe put right. leverage on 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 him and the Chinese government. You know, I can sort of see yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> or it's at least sort of like embarrassing. I mean, mm. like to your point that said like Xi would see it as a slap in the face like like, you know, this guy doesn't have faith in China's future mm. like uh it, it it doesn't mesh with that kind of solid front facing no, you know like no. we're one kind of unified party one kind of unified front yeah it kind of reeks a little bit of like that uh rich russian oligarchs who who love to denounce the west but do like to live in it um or, or enjoy the trappings of the west um you know it does feel a bit like that right yeah their kids mm. go to school here they vacation here yeah yeah it's true yeah. Anything else to add on that? Well, apparently uh, he's the shortest serving foreign minister with only 207 days in office. So uh, so he's, he's up months. there with yeah. uh, Liz Trust as the shortest serving prime minister in Britain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should do a book on the shortest serving like people in, in world politics. That'd be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Chin Gang, we hardly knew ye. Moving on, or westward rather, uh, let's return to Russia and all its drama and dysfunction. Uh, Michael Weiss and The Insider offer a fascinating glimpse into the Game of Thrones-esque uh, machinations at play in the Kremlin. Citing sources in the FSB, GRU, and Ministry of Internal Affairs, they explain why Putin's Praetorians failed to prevent an army of Wagner mercenaries from marching nearly unopposed into Moscow. So going through the key takeaways here. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin's attempted coup in June surprised outsiders, but was reportedly tacitly supported by some Russian intelligence officials. Prigozhin faced little resistance during the rebellion as he enjoyed widespread support within the ranks of Russia's security apparatus and military. Russian soldiers and security officials expressed little devotion to the current regime and were disenchanted with the ongoing war in Ukraine, making them less inclined to stop Prigozhin's forces. Despite coming close to challenging Putin's reign, Prigozhin was not arrested or imprisoned, and he even had a meeting with Putin in St. Petersburg after the coup attempt. Some Russian generals offered various excuses for not intervening, and even FSB Spetsnaz units did not show up to stop Prigozhin's forces. The chaotic first 24 hours of the coup revealed tension and disorder among the top ranks, suggesting that Putin may be somewhat weakened. Prigozhin's loyalists have become divided, with some relocating to Belarus with him, while others sign contracts with the Russian Ministry of Defense. While Prigozhin has evaded immediate consequences, there are warnings that Putin may eventually punish him to send a message to others. Prigozhin continues to hint at future undertakings, but remains a polarizing figure within Russia's power structures. So, back to you, Chris. Yeah. I'm not 
exactly seeing your shocked face right now no well no i was gonna say none of this surprises me in the slightest um <laughs> but uh Prigozhin having popular sport among the rank and file in particular you know color me shocked here um i think we talked about that mm-hmm. a few episodes back and i you know and i still use my boris johnson brexit comparison i don't think Prigozhin knew or thought that he would actually challenge putin's rule and get as far as he did and was a bit shocked when he did yeah. i well i wonder if he underestimated his own popularity if he's that humble um, but I, I suspect he thinks about this all the time now. I think he's probably spends most of his evenings thinking, should I have carried on or not? Because I think Prigozhin's days mm. are numbered, but I think Putin's days are number two, and I don't know which one will go first and in what way. I am deeply intrigued by Michael Weiss's uh, several sources in the Russian special services. I mean, like um, that yeah. that was that was a big standout for me. I have nothing but admiration for michael weiss um borderline jealousy i think but <laughs> i think he's amazing what he does and um you know the specter that this all could happen again in the autumn is worrying uh but it's great greatly timed for when we return uh, from our summer break yeah. so you know please don't do anything during august now when i when i first heard about the um the original mutiny stroke attempted coup um it did to me in that first evening it felt like holding one's breath because in my mind as I went to bed that evening a lot of scenarios were playing in my mind you know we talked about it before like the biggest scariest scenario is obviously some sort of civil war breaks out in Russia and suddenly different people have control of nuclear weapons and stuff and may even be stupid enough to either think about using it against one another or somebody who really hates the West might decide you know what I'm just going to fire something at the West somebody might even want to take out Ukraine all sorts of crazy ass scenarios could have happened thankfully none of that did happen and it kind of turned out to be a big damp squib um, which in many ways I think we're all quite happy about. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, to, to think that this is probably going to happen again in the autumn does worry me a little bit, despite the podcast material that will come yeah. from it. But, um, you know, I think, as I said last time, I think um, Putin, I think he knows deep down that he needs to keep Wagner on side. Um, so any reprisals against Prokosian at the moment would likely lead to that group turning on Putin and his government. Um, I did see in Michael Weiss's article that not always rosy with Wagner and Prokosian. There are some who felt that they got unfairly blamed for things. Um, and, um, you know... And if the military like Prigozhin as much as they do, Putin must know this on some level and they can turn on him as well. Um, you know, so yeah, so during the rebellion, it was difficult for, you know, said in there during the rebellion, it was uh, difficult for Putin to kill Prigozhin simply because he just didn't have enough political capital to easily deal with the man who'd gained a certain level of popularity due to his rhetoric as a quote unquote truth seeker. So um, yeah, interesting times in Russia really are at the moment. <laughs> Wasn't it really kind of just a stunning statement to think that there's someone in Russia that has so much political capital that Putin cannot just kill him out of hand? Yeah. That's that alone is impressive. Yeah. I mean, back to the Stalin picture. <laughs> yeah. We haven't really talked too much about this angle on on this podcast, but uh, Julia Yaffe, she's a, a really good reporter with uh, Puck um, news and and sort of covers this closely i think she's her family's originally from russia and she has a bunch of contacts and stuff over there still she made the point a couple times that it's a bit of a i I don't want to say contrarian i think contrarian is the wrong word but she's made she's made the point a couple times that putin is arguably strengthened interesting by this mutiny because okay let's say if you're if you're if you're 
a Russian officer, an intelligence official, some yeah. oligarch, right, who may have some kind of beef with him. And you see Prigozhin try to oppose Putin and back down. If he can't do it, who can? True. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with that sort of take, but it's a take that I find interesting and I think is worth giving yeah. voice to here. Um, I don't know. Respect for Weiss, like nothing but respect for Weiss and his work. But I still question the characterization of this as a coup. Yeah. Really? I mean, like, do we know for sure that Prigozhin's intent was to overthrow Putin or did he just have a hissy fit? You know? Yeah. Well, one, a few tidbits in here. I mean, so obviously my initial like interest in his uh, sources and stuff. So there's a few things. Number one, could those sources just be bullshitting in some way they could be um i'm i'm intrigued that he was so um public about having sources in the russian different aspects of different parts of the government he talks about sources in the gru and various other things implies that they're still working in the russian um, services and i just don't think i would um be so direct unless i wanted russia to feel like i had that kind of access i don't know i'm not saying michael's making this up no way at all i just um i'm intrigued about right. um his choice to reveal that he has sources in those places um and whether those people are still active or not um and how does one get hold of uh fsb people and stuff but again michael covers russia he's a russian speaker himself and, and he's been covering this for years so you know he's he's obviously done a lot of homework and met a lot of people over the years so um that's an interesting one but one um there were a couple of tidbits that did stand out. So back to the whole, um, the kind of coup stroke mutiny. One thing that came up, there was a quote from a duty officer who was talking about during the shift change, this new duty officer for internal affairs um, did not want to be a hero. And if Prigozhin had demanded to open the gun room, he would give him everything. Um, and, you know, because the big point was yeah. for him was who will feed my children? So basically this duty officer is only loyal to whoever is going to basically pay him. And I think this is one of the deep fundamental problems in the system that Putin's kind of created in Russia. Um, yep. I mean, he didn't start it, but Putin's yep. kind of carried on with that old school way of working a little bit in Russia. And corruption is unfortunately so endemic in Russian forces that really with that sort of situation, those people are going to only be loyal to whoever's actually going to pay them pay them well and pay them regularly um and so if putin suddenly looks like a um a less stable candidate like he did during that kind of mutiny i could see why people would turn um and i don't am i right or wrong in thinking there haven't been any major reprisals against any serving members of the military um by putin by putin have that i haven't seen any major well i could be wrong on that might be not paying enough attention to it i don't know i have a little note about this in the next segment but uh that general uh mm. surovakin who's sort of i guess was nominally the the commander of russian forces in ukraine um he's hasn't been seen in public since the mutiny and it's believed he's at Lafortevo prison because he was sort of conspiring with uh, Prigozhin. I mean, to that to that point, though, I mean, it's it, it's interesting that Prigozhin so far, and I want to make it very clear, so far has gotten away with it. That could change mm. at any minute. But, you know, while like ordinary Russians get prison sentences for speaking out against the war, 
at all. Yeah. What is it? Eight years or something? Yeah. I think it's like 15. Is it? Jeez. I, I think so. I mean, like there's a, that one story a couple months ago mm. of this, um, this kid, like a school age girl uh, drew a picture mm. Um, in, mm. in class that was, you know, unflattering to the war effort. And uh, mm. Russian social services took her away from her father and the father got charged. Like just insane, incredibly puritanical stuff like that. But yeah, so while like Prigozhin can almost march on the Kremlin and and get away with it. I mean, to that point, though, it does seem that the Russians recently, Putin has started cracking down on that um, mm. ultra-nationalist mm. military uh, telegram blogger crowd who have been like yes. really, right, yeah. really outspoken about the Ministry of Defense's conduct, the war like uh, uh, Igor Gherkin um, and other such uh, rapscallions. You know, Igor Gherkin was a... Um, an FSB official who in the 2014, you know, seizure of Crimea and stuff, he was really um, involved in that and was like, think uh, part of the Donetsk militias and stuff. Um, yeah, he, yeah. He, he got arrested recently yeah. for, for criticizing the army to, to your point about that, that duty officer, I think it just sort of shows, I mean, people have different reasons and stuff and, you know, good, good, some bad, but I mean, it, it shows to me that so many of the people in that system are just, have become just complete nihilists who will just wait on the yeah. fence to see who comes out on top. You know, like they just fundamentally just believe in nothing. It's sad um, because I think this has just been Russian politics probably mm -hmm. since God knows when, really. Um, you know, I mean, I've yeah, you know, we've both read many Cold War books and, you know, get your drinks ready. Oleg Gordievsky's book in particular um, talks about how in public people would play the crossword because that was the only kind of benign topic that everybody could kind of get involved with without any repercussion um right. and and you know i think uh, you know i was speaking with a colleague of mine um who uh, on the warship podcast and he was talking about how um because there is so much sort of so many sort of revolutions and what have you in Russia and the ties can turn so fast that people instinctively don't want to stick their neck out because of fears of reprisals. And I think if I lived in that situation, you know, I would feel the same. So um, yeah. I don't, don't see I don't, I don't judge any Russian who decides to sort of take it easy a little bit um, or keep their neck down. I don't blame them, really. Um I think that must be a hor and this is why I you know I prefer the idea of democracies because I could not imagine what it must be like day in day out living in such a uh, system that's so repressive to um you know I suppose the human soul really um and and just with such crackdowns and expression and things like that and it's only getting worse I think you know at least in the 2000s there was some thawing on that but Putin seems to be cracking down more and more now um, yeah. And it's just becoming back to what it was like during the kind of Cold War and communist days, really. Um, and that's not good. One one other thing that interested me in the article, um, and I suppose a bit on the theme of Michael Weiss and his mentioning of his contacts and where, there's a reference to um, Ukraine's capabilities to monitor Russian military command communications. Right. And again, I was just intrigued by the choice of discussing that so openly um are the ukrainians because uh, i know michael weiss has a lot of context ukrainians and stuff um are his sources who he spoke to 
wanting the Russians to know that they could do that? Or do they want them to feel like they're being watched and that the Ukrainians don't necessarily quite have that level of access? I don't know. It's a bit like, uh, say, you know, it's a bit like during World War II, we cracked Enigma and it's like putting on Twitter, hey, we could, we've got the Enigma now. Is there not a fear by saying so publicly that they've got access to this communication that the Russians might just change their codes or something? But again, maybe somebody knows something more than I do and the Russians have run out of codes. They don't have any new equipment. I don't know. It's a bit of a... It's just an interesting choice, I think, to mention that so openly, like with his sources and stuff. I was just very intrigued by that. I'll just say I raised an eyebrow when I read that. I have no idea what that all means, really. Well, maybe it's it's time to get Michael on the show here after we get back. Oh, we've got to. You can ask him. (laughs) Yeah, that might be on the extra extra shot that never gets aired. Yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> it's the uh, for the extra shot after we stop recording. <laughs> the bit that all the governments listen to with care, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's it, no, it's a really great article. I, oh, another thing that came out was the Spetsnaz as well. Russian, um, yes. the Russian elite forces, the Russian version of the SAS. You know, they they didn't do anything during this coup other than protect the FSB building. And apparently two days before this mutiny stroke coup, um, they were ordered to protect the FSB building. So it's good to see that the FSB's priority is to itself in case the shit hits the fan. It's like any good (laughs) omnipotent secret police, you know, at the very end there, you know, I mean, at the end, Himmler was Himmler was concerned with his own hide. You know, he was, in a yeah. private's uniform, trying to blend in. Please don't pay attention to me. Um, that's that's what these guys do when the shit hits the fan, you know? Yeah. Well, we saw Prigozhin's sort of dodgy wig collection, etc. So obviously that mindset's there of when the shit hits the fan, you need to look like somebody else. Yeah. Um, I still don't know whether those pictures that were shared were authentic or not, but um, he did just look like Prigozhin in terrible fancy dress at Halloween. But uh, this is why I've always been a bit like um, sceptical about costumes and makeup and that kind of Mission Impossible style mask thing. Um, but apparently, apparently the, the CIA do have some very good... Um, kind of capabilities with disguising people um uh oh god the name escapes me at the moment uh is it julia mendes Uh, julia mendes yes she's written a book that i've still yet to read and she she talks about um she had a meeting with the president in total disguise and he had no idea that she was a woman um and you know that that was a bit of a revelation to me because to me i've always i mean i don't know theatrical makeup and stuff good when it's done by people who know what they're doing with a lot of time yeah. um but believe you and me it's very easy to spot really bad makeup real yeah. fast and i've always been a bit skeptical about disguises etc um so yeah i don't know i've always i've always been found it interesting but Prigozhin's disguises definitely if i were looking for him i would totally recognize him a mile off well you know if saw, so. if if we're concerned about this is a bit of an aside but if we're concerned about like MAGA types here, you know, supporting the Russians, maybe we should mm. show them more pictures mm. of Prigozhin in drag. That might change their tune. <laughs> you know? Yes, that's true. That is true. Right. Cool. Well, I think I, that was a, no, it's a really great article. I do recommend people to read it. And uh, thank you for suggesting it because I think that was a really interesting one. Yeah. So while Putin struggles to stabilize his regime at home, his military has relaunched a concerted effort to cripple Ukraine's agricultural exports which could cause skyrocketing food prices abroad and even lead to famine across the global south. 
G-Captain Maritime News has a, a write-up on the fallout from the Black Sea Grain Initiative's collapse and NATO's hesitance to intervene more directly to ensure these exports reach markets. It explains, Russia attacked Ukrainian ports after withdrawing from a UN-backed grain export deal with Kyiv, causing concerns about food prices and mass starvation. Russia considers all ships traveling to Ukraine as potential carriers of military cargo, making grain ships vulnerable to attacks in the Black Sea. Ukraine proposed rerouting grain ships through NATO waters, but the U.S. Navy rejected the idea, mm. citing concerns of provoking Russia to escalate the war. Former admirals suggested NATO naval escorts and reflagging ships with the American flag for protection, but the U.S. Navy resisted. The U.S. Navy's willingness to protect ships in the Middle East, but not in the Black Sea, raises questions about its priorities. Ukraine also asked the U.N. to establish a system for reparations, for damages caused by Russia's military aggression in its territorial waters. The situation raises questions about NATO's protection of its territorial waters and implications for maritime security and conflict mm. escalation. Thoughts on this one? It's a bit tricky. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this worldwide grain and fertilizers shortage, it affects a large proportion of Africa, mm -hmm. apparently. Um, and that's not a good thing. And I can only assume that Russian propaganda in Africa is now going to blame uh, Ukraine and NATO for their actions there. Um, you know, because there were a lot of people, I think, online last year in the early stages of the war who were kind of downplaying the global significance of this dreadful war and kind of saying effectively it was just a European affair or that, even worse, Europeans only cared about it because the Ukrainians are white. Um, but, you know, Africa is being terribly affected by this and obviously with the effects of climate change as well. If you don't have fertilizers for crops, you can't grow stuff. And if you're not getting grain coming in, you can't, you know, feed people as well. So that is a big, big problem. And I think food security, I mean, I would love to do an episode on food security at some point because I yeah. think that is one of the big issues coming up in our lifetime um i'm hoping it a lot later than sooner but i mean like oh if we keep having lots of droughts keep having lots of mass fires and things i mean like if you look at what happened of australia last year not that australia is a big exporter for us at least but i mean if you saw what happened to all those fires and then had that happen i don't know in the united states had that happen in other places and it all happened pretty much at the same time that a food shortage could happen very yeah. fast um and, you know, with memories of COVID and stuff disappearing from the shelves very quickly, it's a bit worrying. And um, not that I want to become a prepper or anything, but maybe the preppers are right on that front. I don't know. Maybe I need to have a couple of bags of rice and grain just uh, hidden away somewhere yeah. with my Uzi and God knows what else. But <laughs> um, so one other thing that interests me that stood out in this article was that the um, it sounds like NATO ships have been targeted it was romanian nato ships have already been targeted by the russians and um nato have apparently kind of played that down a bit and to me it's sort of showing that the russians are very brazen about attacking nato ships they don't seem to care because we had that incident last year last september where the russians kind of uh, this is still debate about exactly what happened but they kind of launched or dropped a missile in the vicinity of a british spy plane a rivet joint mm -hmm. that had like um 18 20 crew uh members of crew on board and if they had shot that 
down, that rivet joint down, that could have been a huge, huge international incident, and the Russians didn't seem to give a shit. And they've even attacked a drone as well. Didn't we they? learn from the... Mm. Yeah, did, did, didn't we learn from the Discord leaks that they actually oh, yeah. tried to shoot it down? Yeah, you're right, we did. There was... Yeah, yeah, we did learn that. I've completely forgotten that. Yes, we did actually learn that there was something about they actually purposely did that. So there's a so there's a lot of caution on NATO's side. So the part I was going to get to is there is a lot of caution on NATO's side. Um, and, I, and I kind of understand and partly agree with this caution but at the same time the russians are being so brazen they don't give a monkeys about attacking a nato ship that maybe we should consider having a nato escort with these ships so then if the russians yeah. are stupid enough to shoot at these ships then they know they're gonna you know get consequences because i think it's the problem putin i think putin likes to kind of um poke prod and sort of nibble away at these little areas and cause these niggles that then leads to allies and people fighting with each other um and so he and so he can kind of kind of keep getting away with things i think this is the problem and putin's strategy always seems to be that i mean yeah we've had endless um encroachments of nato airspace over the years even british airspace by russian planes testing our um yeah. early warning systems and stuff yeah we get a we, you know we had that a lot before the war i don't know that happens so much now but certainly before the ukraine war that would happen good few times a year um where you'd get an yeah. article in the telegraph or the son of like a, a Eurofighter with a russian bear next to it and stuff and so you know russia is very brazen and i think maybe we need to find a way to meet that without it obviously escalating to the point where we completely regret it um you know the other option is to give ukraine the ships and the submarines to do the job for NATO, which is kind of what we're doing with the war anyway. Maybe we can add an right. extra U to AUKUS, you know, because what is an extra U between friends? You know, maybe we need some uh, subs in Ukraine out there that have the capability to sink a few Russian ships. Um, you know, I wouldn't lose any sleep over that if they're going to start doing that. Yeah. The scheme that the Ukrainians were kind of proposing is that I think NATO warships would escort these ships sort of from Ukrainian waters along the Black Sea coast through the territorial waters of Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, into the Bosphorus, and then into Med, right? So if these ships aren't in international waters in the Black Sea, you know, okay, they're safe, right? But I mean, I think this is a moment where we should call Russia's bluff. Yeah. That said, there are 90 miles of Ukrainian coastline between Odessa and the Romanian maritime border, and a lot can go wrong there. Even just in that one stretch, you know, it's like that, uh, that like space in the North Atlantic during World War Two between yeah. like Nova Scotia and when you would get to Scotland where like there's no coverage and like for the U-boats, it was like a free for all. Right. I mean, it's kind of that same kind of dynamic there. And I, I think, you know, like the no fly zone debate from about like a year ago, these operations are never as simple as they seem to be on Twitter. Um but, you know, I think this might be a good role for the Turkish Navy. Yeah, I mean, I think Erdogan point. has decent relations with Putin, arguably better than any other NATO leader. Mm. Um, you know, the Black Sea is Turkey's backyard, and I don't think Russia would dare touch them mm. if they were mm. Turkish warships escorting yeah. these ships to the Bosphorus. I don't, mm. I don't think the Russians would, mm. would go near them. Mm. I think that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, at least the Turkish ships kind of have a natural reason to be in that area as well. So yeah, I think you're right. The Turkish are the perfect choice there for that because they have that natural reason to be in that area. 
Um, and yeah, Putin would probably be less likely to target those ships. Um, so yeah, there's, something needs to happen because this is unacceptable, especially with, with the food security side of it as well. Um, I just think it's we just need to keep finding ways to sort of push back against Putin because the more we let him, you know, give an inch and he'll take a mile. And there's been too much of that going on, yeah. um, especially with NATO playing all this down um, from what that article was saying. That's quite frustrating to read, actually, because um, I would hope that NATO would at least just be honest and put the information out there and, and then have that debate. I mean, it's a bit like, um, you know, it's, it, it, there's this sort of tendency in politics to sit on certain information just because they're concerned of how it's going to be interpreted and stuff. And I just think you need to put out the information and the consequences will be what they are in some situations. I mean, obviously there are times where secrecy is important and all that. I get that. Um, but when stuff like this is going on, um, I just think that transparency is better in these situations because also every time NATO get yeah. caught covering up information, it's a great excuse for critics of NATO to kind of use it as an example again, as, as of NATO, you know, lying, um, or covering stuff up. Yeah. So it's, it's very frustrating to read that. And I think John Seifer and Mark Palmeropoulos have been sort of making this point a lot on Twitter recently, but mm. like there needs to be sort of a shift in the thinking here that like, I think there's a good point to be made that instead of us fretting about provoking mm. Russia, yeah, Putin needs to wake up worried about provoking NATO. Yeah, yeah. And how do we you do know? that? I don't know how we do that. <laughs> you know, are we supposed to start penetrating their airspace? Yeah. I don't know. What, how does one do that? Do we need to um, uh, do a customary nuking of some small random island that nobody's on? I don't know. <laughs> what do you do? I don't know. <laughs> That's an know. interesting one. I mean, though. yeah, I, I think yeah. I think there are, there are moments where you just have to call bullshit. Like, yeah. no, we're going to get these ships out. Fuck you. Um, try us if you want, and I think Turkey is the perfect partner to do that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Otherwise, well, yeah, otherwise it's sending the Marines, isn't it? <laughs> That's technically not a declaration of war if you send in your Marines, is it? You know. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. But well, uh, I think this issue in the Black Sea, a real flashpoint potentially, serves to further illustrate the urgency that many mm. feel to bring the war to a close sooner rather than later. Uh, the longer it drags on, the greater the likelihood that through some accident, miscalculation, or desperation from Moscow, you could see NATO and Russian warships exchange fire. But this is primarily a land war, and so to end it, Ukraine must decisively degrade Russia's capabilities on mm. the ground. Mm. Uh, this next piece in The Guardian by Jack Watling, a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, speaks to the frustration that bureaucracy, production constraints, and just plain lethargy from the West is unnecessarily prolonging the war. I'll sum it up. Uh, Ukrainian forces have been engaged in a challenging battle against heavily fortified Russian positions along the so-called Surovakin line to claim their territory, resulting in significant equipment and personnel losses on both sides. Russian troops are entrenched behind multiple layers of concrete hardened positions, backed by artillery, attack helicopters, electronic warfare, and air defenses, making it difficult for Ukrainian forces to advance without suffering unsustainable losses. Despite these challenges, Ukrainian troops tend to win in close combat with the Russians, highlighting the importance of proper preparation for such engagements. The Ukrainian armed forces have longer-ranged, accurate heavy howitzers, giving them an advantage in counter-battery fire against the Russians. 
Western support has enabled Ukraine to gain an edge, but there have been some mistakes that need correction. Ukraine had requested specific assistance from its international partners, including artillery, engineering capability, tactical air defense, protected mobility, and collective and staff training. Western capitals provided some support, but engineering and tactical air defense assistance were lacking and collective and staff training took time to set up. The delay in provoking Western tanks and IFVs, those are infantry fighting vehicles, to Ukraine gave Russian forces more time to build defenses, complicating the Ukrainian troops' task. It concludes, Western capitals need to take a longer-term view and make timely decisions, especially in expanding munitions productions, to maintain the advantages Ukraine currently enjoys and meet NATO's readiness targets. Chris, I think you flagged this one. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, a few standouts. I mean, one of the key ones, obviously, the Ukrainians are having to learn complex maneuvers and tactics under live fire. Um, And, you Mm -hmm. know, learning on the job in that situation, any mistake leads to death. And I've got nothing but admiration for the Ukraine forces and what they've achieved so far. Um, From reading the article, it appears that, yeah, the US and NATO members are giving Ukraine just enough, but could be doing more. Um, That's been said many a time by many people. Some have speculated that in Washington, it's because there's this concern of of what a defeated Russia will look like and the consequences of that. And yeah, we had a we had a listener who reached out to us um, just after our last episode, Mm. and he brought up a point uh, that we were both sort of scratching our heads about a little bit about sort of how russian forces would invade other countries in europe and um and we did see that there were kremlin plans for and projections for getting control of belarus in roughly 10 years and i think we covered that in march didn't we um and at the moment i do not honestly think that russia has the capability to mount any more invasions of europe but uh, in europe but um you know prior to the war maybe but certainly the war is totally um decimated their forces and i think even um totally challenged our perceptions of what russia's capability even is and there's i definitely don't think there's the morale either or the the talent to mount any other significant operations in europe at this time um you know and i've said before historically russian forces have tended to be reliant on brute brute force and they still have the capability to win the war against ukraine um so you know I, i think washington do need to have a think about their you know their concern about what this sort of defeated russia will look like i think for me it's um it's sort of like i think i i've said this before it's sort of like my concerns more about 15 to 30 years time when you know post defeated russia post justice post all sorts of things you know where russian forces have learned their lessons from this war and are better organized that's what concerns me and i think if we don't have a properly sort of defeated russia and a proper peace and reconciliation sort of process um then that becomes much more likely and then i think russia is going to be much more dangerous than it currently is um and that, that's the thing so it, it, it's like that fear to avoid that like weimar germany dynamic yeah this is done you know yeah and, I, and i'm like a broken record on this but you know we've we've seen we've seen world war ii we we there, there are clear lessons to be learned from how that we got to that point and i you know as an older man or whatever i i don't have kids i don't actually plan to have any kids but um i don't want my friends grandchildren 
um, to be having to deal with Putin 2.0 with a much better equipped and um, you know less corrupt Russian military who have learned valuable lessons from their conflict with Ukraine and decide, yeah, we're going to take on NATO, etc. I really would like to see that avoided. Um, you know, I think we've all got better things to be doing in our lives and have to deal with that. On a practical level, I think the White House and NATO should do all they can to give what Ukraine they need. Um, one of the interesting things that came up, and funny enough, my air show I went to just the other week, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about F-16s and why, why, um, you know, why was it so important to give the Ukrainians F-16s? Because I, in my mind, the Ukrainians have Russian jets at the moment. I believe they're Su-27s and 29s. Um, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on that. But they're, you know, pretty advanced Russian jets. I still don't quite understand why there wasn't a process to buy up all the Russian jets other NATO members have, because other countries do have them, and give them to the Ukrainians as a kind of a band-aid, because it would save time on training, because then you're giving the Ukrainians right. equipment they already know how to use. Because one of the things that came up in this article is that NATO are kind of training uh, Ukrainians in the NATO way, but the Ukrainians don't have full NATO integration. So why F-16s are... Um, a better choice in the long run is the F-16 has basically it has access to the NATO fire control systems which Ukraine's current jets do not have and the Russian jets that they would get in my scenario would not have and and so there's this weird situation going on with arming Ukraine where they're getting some they're getting NATO equipment with NATO uh, fire control systems but they've also got an awful lot of equipment that doesn't have NATO fire control systems and it's this awkward thing of what to give people because obviously the Ukrainians are all trained in what they know but we're starting to give them other stuff for this sort of future NATO integration which at the moment in my mind the NATO integration thing at least to me, is a little bit less important. I think you need to give them stuff that they can use that can basically, to put it crudely, kill Russians and get their territory back from them. Um, yeah. And you need to give the Ukrainians what they know how to use because every time you send a pilot away to, I don't know, America, Germany or Britain to train on an F-16, that's the Ukraine one pilot down. You know, over time, obviously, with the Ukraine's, uh, Ukrainians being given F-16s and stuff, that's fair point but it's it's yeah i think this article basically illustrates that there is this sort of conflicting thing going on between sort of the nato way versus the ukrainian way and it feels like at the moment that the ukrainians to put it crudely are being trained on macintosh computers but being given windows 95 systems back in ukraine to deal with yeah. so so it's, it's a yeah. messy thing but there's no real easy answer in a an emergency situation like this is there well i i think to your point there it sort of shows that, you know, I think while we've established on, on, on the last podcast that, you know, we believe that, yes, Russia, not Ukraine mm. deserves to be in NATO and should be in NATO. It's not simply a matter of saying, OK, now you're in, mm. you know, mm. like being in NATO is a huge comprehensive level of integration with the rest yeah. of the alliance, you know, and this takes time, even under peacetime circumstances, it takes time to build up and to you know, train and to and to get to that level of readiness and just integration. And they're doing this in the middle of a massive shooting war, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like to your point about like the pilots are m much more valuable than the planes that they fly, mm. you know, mm. losing, losing them is like you, it, you can't just replace them, you know, the way you could build a new airplane. You can't just build a new seasoned combat mm. pilot, mm. you mm. know?
Well, yeah, so um, much skill required to fly a jet and then fly it, and co- not just to fly it, but to fly it in combat um, yeah. and be effective. I mean, at that air show I was at watching these F-16s and stuff, um, it's a lot of horsepower uh, you've got to deal with and stuff. And um, yeah, no, a, a total yeah. Uh, yeah. admiration for these pilots, really. I mean, I, I think also it's absolutely insane that Russian mm. defenses are called the Sorovakin line. <laughs> named after a general who is now probably in a cell at Lafortevo prison for conspiring with Grigozin, who meanwhile walks free. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if that's just like just not knocking irony on the head and is yeah. a symbol for how this war has gone for them, I don't know. I thought that was so funny that that's what their defenses are called. Um, I mean, I, I also think it says something uh, heartening and pretty profound that Ukraine actually values its soldiers and won't waste their lives hurling them against these defenses like mm-hmm. cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. I think that's really like the difference just between these two countries. Yeah, This whole thing, it's a colossal logistical undertaking mm-hmm. and these difficulties aren't new. I mean, I remember like the Europeans really struggled to sustain themselves a couple mm-hmm. weeks into the Libyan civil war, you know. Um, they had to rely on U.S. for fuel and ammunition. Um and I think it's important that the Pentagon and NATO identifies and fixes these issues now rather than in the middle of a major theater war in the Pacific. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. You yeah, know? it's interesting you mentioned the war in the uh, Pacific because I've been um, looking at this new plans for amphibious um, planes as the US military have decided that they want to bring flying boats back and stuff. And there's even talk of maybe even bringing back the uh, old style Catalina plane and uh, doing a kind of revamped version of that. So it's all sorts of interesting things to consider depending on who your adversary is and what kind of systems they need but yeah the um the pla just did a uh big um live fire exercise transporting mm. troops across a body of water in these big like ferries so you can imagine what that's for mm. yeah it's kind of worrying isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> all right well that's what we're here for to keep you awake at night i think you know we're we're yes. you know somebody once said to me like espionage is a bit like modern horror in a way because there's so many terrible things uh, around us but yeah <laughs> well if if you're having trouble sleeping i'm sorry but i don't think this next story will will help you much at all um so while The Russian army's performance on the battlefield hasn't proven it to be the 1,500-pound bear its recruitment ads claim. Russia's intelligence services have always been wickedly capable in disinformation, misinformation, psychological warfare, active measures, plug, etc. Going back to the KGB laundering conspiracy theories through third world newspapers. These operations are, of course, vastly cheaper than waging a full-scale invasion. They're leaner, have fewer moving parts to break down, and if successful, can easily inflict more damage than any tank division. We saw this with the troll farms in 2016, with Brexit, with AstroTurf protests around COVID and Black Lives Matter, chipping away at the ability of ordinary people to perceive what is true and what is false, with the cynical aim that they'll either internalize these lies or give up and check out. Generative artificial intelligence, AI, takes this capacity to produce indistinguishable disinformation and blast it into the stratosphere. Going into 2024 and the elections here in the U.S., alarms are going off that the public, the press, Mm. the intelligence community aren't prepared to tackle this threat. Mm. And this just came up in a nomination hearing for the next NSA director. A Politico piece here by Maggie Miller breaks it down. Lieutenant General Timothy Ha, Joe Biden's nominee to lead the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, warned that generative AI technologies will likely pose a significant threat in the upcoming presidential election. 
Lawmakers in the House and Senate are scrambling to find ways to regulate and monitor the use of new AI technologies, particularly after past attempts by foreign hackers, including from Russia, to interfere in U.S. elections. The increasing use of AI technologies, like OpenAI's ChatGPT, has raised new challenges, particularly with regards to the proliferation of disinformation online. Hmm. Senators from both parties showed significant interest in addressing the AI-related problems during Ha's confirmation hearing, with China's use of AI for surveillance and monitoring cited as a worrying example. Chris, what say you? Wow, I have such mixed feelings about AI. Uh, the more I think about it, the more its development feels like a slow motion car crash that was totally avoidable. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder sometimes if those who work on you know, innovative technology really reflect or consider the consequences and put that before their own personal pride and ego. And there's a very good film about that that we'll talk about later. Um, so uh, AI, as helpful as it is, does feel like the next disruptive force that we're not ready for, a bit like the sudden rise of social media and how it allowed destructive disinformation to spread. And, um, you know, I dread to think how AI is going to be used in the 2024 election because all we need is a fake video akin to the Hillary Clinton email scandal or Trump admitting to grabbing women's genitals in the day of the election so that could totally change and sway the vote. Um, and then it could be weeks later before it's revealed whatever this thing was, um, was, a, was a fake. And the election would not be reversed because of that, you know. And I think schools and even employers need to be promoting digital literary skills more. If they're not already, I think they really need to make that a priority because I meet so many people who have very poor digital literacy skills and what i mean by that is they seem to have the inability to google the author of an article that they're reading that has an emotional response with them and um and yeah. they don't sort of look into the background of the author and their experience what they've written before what other people have said about them which is basic empiricism um empirical analysis is something i learned at university when i did my dissertation and it was one of the many things that really helped me get out of conspiracy theories and um and i do recommend people if they aren't familiar with how to do that to really look into that because the future is going to become a lot more uncertain um in many ways with this technology and um what governments say will become a lot more cloudy and um and i just think it's very concerning and we've seen the damn movies about it. it's why i call it a slow motion car crash because it's not like we haven't warned ourselves or be warned i mean even james cameron came out the other day to say he'd warned us with the terminator you know and he's not wrong really yeah. um on the plus side obviously ai has the capability to make our lives easier and i do you use it i use it to edit my own writing check my grammar i've used it on this podcast to help with edits even though i found actually that ai tends to make the job harder and still it doesn't really save me any time um uh, i use so, it for this script well yeah i do use it for the espresso martini scripts and it does help because it's yeah, every, an article down to bullet points um it's very helpful yeah. because i mean the scripts of this episode what was yours mine mine are usually about sort of between 10 to 16 pages in the end for each episode i What's think this is like I think this including extra shot, I mm. think it's like 13-ish. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I didn't yeah. use I didn't use 
I didn't use ChatGPT to just write the whole thing. No, I no, mean, no. part of it is clearly in my voice, but mm. you know, like these bullet points and summaries of stuff, it well, just saves it. time and it's easier. Yeah, yeah. To just know? to get the key points from an article and be able to read it back to people. That's what I use Ch- ChatGPT right. for. It, it's sort of the the bozo work. I still have to read the article because I reread. I read each article about two or three times. Um, yeah. Partly, part number one, just to read it, so I understand it. Two, to do the chat GCP and make sure chat GCP hasn't fucked it completely up. And then three, to get my thoughts gathered with um, with what the article means and beyond, and read around the article a bit too, you know. And it, it's um, so it has it's has it is helpful and for me personally as well i you know i have dyslexia so my grammar is pretty terrible sometimes and um so i i find like things like grammarly which is an ai tool as well is a very useful bit of kit um much better than microsoft word um and um you know for grammar and spelling that that has made my life so much easier because i'm you know i hate to admit it but that's my area of total weakness as a writer um you know so so when writing all my stuff's got lots of red lines all over it which i have come to the thing of i'll deal with that later um you know i'll get to the point so uh so yeah so one other other thoughts i've just sidetracked myself there my use in ai but um i think there does need to be some sort of international debate and agreement on this akin to maybe the start treaty um you know maybe ai should be treated a bit like nuclear weapons maybe i'm going a bit over the top there but but it has a lot of dangerous potential um and it has a and it's dangerous on many levels because i think one of my um like many people I mean, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of unemployment floating around now. And some of that at the moment, uh, and it's going to grow, is because certain jobs are now starting to become automated. We've seen it over the years with, like, when I used to go to my bank 10 years ago, it used to be full of staff. And now my bank is more um, just two or three members of staff, a lot more automatic sort of uh, checking points. Same with the supermarket, a lot more self-checkouts than there are actual checkouts. And I kind of feel like that maybe because you're doing the work of a checkout person, maybe you should get at least 10% off your bill. But there we go. That's another another debate. Yeah. There. Um, and I think there should be a robot tax yeah. too, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so, yeah. But I, I want even if we... So if we don't have an international agreement, the other problem is that what will happen is... Um, you know, in the the West, we will probably be a bit more. Well, I like to think we'll be a bit more cautious about its use, but near state competitors might be less cautious, like Russia, for example, with their disinformation and things like that. Um, now, I could be biased and wrong putting it that way, but I kind of feel like certain countries are more likely to exploit it for bad things than others. I mean, undoubtedly, I'm sure our intelligence services use AI for all sorts of things too. I feel like AI is kind of become inflicted on us without a debate as a society i feel like technology has progressed in such a way where we just sort of slowly adopt things but we don't talk about it the same with sort of social media and even smartphones they just appeared on the market but there was no real debate about it until it started doing things that we weren't happy about so with smartphones and social media we've had debates about digital privacy but we've had those debates 10 years too late and a lot of those debates were too focused on government and not private corporations. I mean, I'm talking about Snowden here. The Snowden revelations, what the big point that Snowden never brought up and none of his allies did was the fact that companies like Google have far more data on you and is far more invasive and even actually listens to you, um, at least via uh, Alexa, um, for certain keywords that the NSA would never do. 
um, and never be able to do because of mm-hmm. all the legal sort of steps to stop them from doing that. But there are less legal steps for private companies. So I think AI is a bit like a Trojan horse. We've got to be really careful with it. <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox. Now. Well, <laughs> if you want a interesting story, true story Ooh. about you know using AI to nice, help yeah. develop this script. So the previous article about you know the assistance to the Ukrainians and stuff, I fed that into ChatGPT and just said, you know, give me a few bullet points, top line summary about mm-hmm. its key points, you know, and it 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 did that. But then it said at the bottom, uh, this is an article about a fictional scenario, so you Ooh. should be you know cautious about fully believing what it says. Wow! And it did that because ChatGPT has no knowledge of current events past 2021. You're right. You're so right. So it does mm-hmm. not know about the invasion of ukraine and it said yeah this is a fiction this is an article about a fictional scenario oh oh chat gtp but all the days of when this was all fiction you know (laughs) back in the good old days you know yeah but i mean (laughs) if 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 you really want to get freaked the hell out here okay so if i'm putin i've realized by now that i can't militarily defeat ukraine against the support nato provides Mm, mm. and this is an existential dilemma for me right like if i lose this war i'm likely to be like killed but i could still shatter nato by working to put trump back in office right uh and it would be a lot cheaper than losing half of my military in ukraine so i mean so okay so i'm just kind of spinning this scenario up on the fly here but relatively inexpensive and easy to do with AI, with a combination of AI and a, you know, rebuilding a replica of the upstairs White House residence on a downstage somewhere, mm-hmm. putting that all together with AI to produce what purports to be a sort of grainy kind of cell phone video as if it was a Secret Service agent or a White House resident staff mm-hmm. sort of snuck it in mm-hmm. a video of Joe Biden in bed in the White House, hooked up to all kinds of tubes and monitors in like a full on yeah. like dementia. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And release that a couple of days before the election. Yeah. We can even release a video of him dying on the day of the election. He has a heart attack or something. Yeah. You know, because people go on about Joe Biden's age. Um and he is was he seventy nine B eighty, I think, next year. Um so obviously it mm-hmm. is a bit of a concern for people. But um I could just see a, a video of him, I don't know clutching his chest in the White House and falling over on the Resolute desk or whatever. <laughs> and it would take hours for even the government to even notice that it's gone out for them to issue... said, well, we have to have, like, live cameras of all all the presidents waiting to be re-elected just to prove that they haven't been... Yeah, like a, like a Truman Show kind <laughs> yeah. of shit to yeah. show that, like, he's actually not dead, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, a, a bigger problem with this is... So you could release that video... And then have, you know, the White House bring him out immediately, like, nope, here he is, it's fake. But people's media literacy is so shit anymore, you know, that uh, yeah. if they if they want to believe something, they will. Yeah, even if totally. it makes zero sense logically. Mm. And this, this is our illness. Right, and be mm. fully discredited, nope, like, they could actually bring Joe Biden out, like, nope, it's fake, mm. I'm fine. And you'll still have at least, I think, probably close to 40% of the country still being like, I don't believe that. I think, yeah, you know, that's an yeah. actor. That's on Tyler Perry's soundstage. Mm, mm, mm. And, this, and, and people question sometimes why we talk about this in the podcast, because this is a clear threat to democracy. You know, I think actually digital literacy or the lack of it is a threat to democracy. And I think we yeah. may unfortunately see it 
uh, and its consequences massively next year. We've already kind of seen it. We've seen it with the rise of um, you already have far right politics and things like that. Um, and with the January 6th attack, which apparently we somehow predicted on the show many years ago, but <laughs> or predicted a sort of scenario like that. But yeah. So we, we, we kind of already have here. I mean, mm. a couple of weeks ago, there was a uh, Ron DeSantis's campaign put out a radio ad in Iowa that used uh, an AI generated Trump voice yeah. saying something. I forget exactly what it was, but an AI generated version of Trump saying something right mm. on this radio ad in Iowa. There was another video, um, and this is more, you know, really beggar's belief, but there was a video that someone did of, um, with AI of Hillary Clinton on MSNBC endorsing Ron DeSantis. So we've already seen it. Like, you, you, you will see it in this election mm-hmm. cycle. Um, I mean, I don't know that it's going to be something as, as dangerous as, you know, that scenario with Biden that I just said, but, like, it's going to happen. And yeah. I think it's not so much, the issue isn't so much the technology it's the gullibility and the idiocy and the ignorance of us that makes it dangerous yeah well this is it and and uh, i was listening to an interview of malcolm nance ages ago he was talking about how within the russian intelligence service and these troll farms that they run that they have literally well there's groups of people responsible for each country and they have like desks for each state and each region and each person at those desks becomes an expert and all the petty issues that are going on in that target country in those states and in those towns and their job is to create assets that will basically play to those petty issues and piss people off so you can bet right yeah. now as we're having this conversation that there is somewhere some somewhere there is a troll factory where there are individuals who are probably creating assets in anticipation for next year, or they're planning what assets they will create. Like we do, I do on, on like shoots and stuff. I, I um, have in the past worked on shoots for Christmas that you usually film in the summer because you need time to, to do all that. And they've been planned right. back in the following January, the previous January and things like that. So, so there are people out there probably having meetings about, what kind of assets can we create? What do we need to create these things? There are probably even people testing out fake videos of Biden dying in the White House or snorting cocaine sure. off, a, off the desk, the Resolute desk or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, you name all sorts of things that will piss off American voters on, on the day of the election and make them vote for not Biden, you know. Um, uh, and so it's it's going to be very interesting. And I'm just, yeah, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> um, this is a subject I yeah. This is a subject I really want to I really want to get into uh, in in the fall with a show that I've been planning for a while and has gotten pushed back for various reasons. But in the fall, we're going to get into this big time. Well, I think that about wraps up our show today, uh, or at least half of it. Um, links for all the articles we covered are in the show notes. We'll be con- we'll be continuing with Extra Shot over on Patreon. So if you're a subscriber, uh, we shall see you there shortly. And if not, why not? Like, it's only like five bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cheap. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no. So, yeah, please, no, please do consider subscribing because obviously you'll be directly supporting this show and you'll have our undying gratitude and if you're lucky you'll get a, a free cup or a coaster so uh, you know <laughs> so uh yeah i mean what what else what else do you have to do uh patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies come listen to us ramble for another hour oppenheimer bond uh smart watches spying on you 
Um, it'll be fun. But alas, if not, we thank you very much for listening to Espresso Martini. Enjoy the rest of your summer or winter for our friends down under. Uh, and we'll see you in September. I got a feeling there'll be uh, mountains for us to dig through when we return. Yes. Yes, indeed. If you have any questions, suggestions, statements of outrage, feel free to shoot us an email at secretsandspies at gmail.com. Drop us a review as well on your streaming app of choice. It really helps. But maybe keep the statements of outrage in an email, though. Um, Chris, where else can folks find us? Yeah, we can find us on Twitter. Just go to at Secrets and Spies. We are now on Threads, which is also at Secrets and Spies. And we're also on Instagram, which is also at Secrets and Spies. You can see my uh, Royal International Air Tattoo photographs on there um, and various other sort of spy-related photos that I come up with on my random sort of uh, amblings around London. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Take care, and we will catch you in September. And if not, we'll catch you on Extra Shot. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.